in chapter 6 through 10, but this week we're going to be in chapter 10. Um, and again, like as far as verse by verse goes, verse by verse, I'm going to be sticking through about 15 through 19 of this chapter 10. It's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. So I want you to imagine you, you are witnessing what is called a theophany. Can you say, say theophany? That is when God reveals himself to people. So what we said last week, again, is that God is beyond our vocabulary. So I said this before, you know, last week, if you were to ask, you know, maybe a four-year-old or a five-year-old what, you know, the float looked like in the Hickory Christmas Parade, they would say something like, as bright color, Santa. That's about all you're going to get out of them, right? And even so if you had asked someone a little bit older, they would say, oh, yes, it was such and such, and they had flashing lights, and da 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 you know, The more mature you are, the greater your vocabulary is, but then we've got to realize that God Almighty is beyond our vocabulary. So you're talking about a human trying to describe something that is beyond our vocabulary as humans and our, cap- our capability. This is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, right now we know in part, we see in part, we think in part, but then, and he's talking about when we're with the Lord in heaven, we will know completely and so these are eternal things that are trying to be described in a temporal language. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 10. We're going to read 22 verses. And again, I will try to read them in a way that, and just kind of like I was, I was Ezekiel. Verse 1. As I looked, I saw what appeared to be a throne of blue sapphire above the crystal surface over the heads of the cherubim. Then the Lord spoke to the man in linen clothing and said, Go in between the whirling wheels beneath the cherubim and take a handful of glowing coals. And scatter them over the city. And he did this, and I watched. And the cherubim were standing at the south end of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud of the glory filled the inner courtyard. Then the glory of the Lord rose up from above the cherubim and went over the door of the temple. The temple was filled with this cloud of glory, and the temple courtyard glowed brightly with the glory of the Lord. Then the moving wings of the cherubim sounded like the voice of God Almighty and could be heard clearly in the outer courtyard. And the Lord said to the man in the linen clothing, go in between the cherubim and take some of the burning coals from between the wheels. So the man went in and stood beside one of the wheels and one of the cherubim reached out his hand and took some live coals from the fire among them. He put the coals into the hands of the man in the linen clothing and the man took them and went out. All the cherubim had what looked like human hands hidden underneath their wings and each of the four cherubim had wheels beside him and the wheels sparkled like chrysolite. All four wheels looked the same. Each wheel had a second wheel turning crosswise within it. The cherubim could move forward in any of the four directions that they faced without turning as they moved. They went straight in the direction of whichever their heads were turning, never turning aside. Turn, never turning aside. Both the cherubim and the wheels were covered with eyes. The cherubim had eyes all over their bodies, including their hands, their backs, and their wings. And I heard some refer to the wheels as the whirling wheels. Each of the four cherubim, that must have been a country guy. I saw the whirling wheels. Okay. Each of the four cherubim had four faces. Now, if you'll go back to chapter one, we realize that the first was the face of an ox. They just leave out one, but it's the whole idea of he's looking at three of them and doesn't see the fourth one. But it's the face of an ox. The second was a human face. The third was the face of a lion. The fourth was the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up. These were the same living beings I had seen by the side of the Kibar River. That's a, a quote back to chapter one. When the cherubim moved, the wheels moved with them, and they rose into the air. The wheels stayed beside them, going with them as they flew, and the cherubim stood still. The wheels stopped, for the spirit of the living beings was in the wheels. Then the glory of the Lord moved from the door of a temple and hovered above the cherubim. And as I watched, the cherubim flew with their wheels to the east gate of the Lord's temple, and the glory of the Lord hovered above them. These were the same living beings I had seen beneath the God of Israel when I was by the Kibar River. I knew they were the cherubim, for each had four faces and four wings that looked like human hands under their wings. Their faces, too, were just like the faces of the beings that I had seen at the Kibar, and they traveled straight ahead, just as the others had. Now, this is a tough text, man, but let me cut it right down to you. What Ezekiel is witnessing is the reversal 
of 1 Kings 7 when Solomon dedicates the temple and the glory of the Lord comes to the temple. Now he is watching the reversal of that where the glory of the Lord is leaving the temple. Now, the glory of the Lord leaving. Let me tell you something. I worked for an office uh, when I was in college some and when I was in high school uh, down in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. And it was, I was a clerk. You know, it's kind of interesting work. Sometimes I got to go deliver things to the uh, governor's mansion. Sometimes I got to go deliver things to the Senate. I got to go to the legislature. I got to go to Superior Court. I got to go to, uh, you know, the Court of Appeals. I got to talk with judges. I got to deliver subpoenas, all that kind of stuff. But when I was in the office, it could be miserable. And I'm going to tell you why it was miserable. Because there were two people that worked as clerks at that office that that was as far as they were ever going to progress in life. They had no career aspirations whatsoever. Being a clerk, making about six fifty an hour was what they were going to do for the rest of their life. And if you've ever met someone that has just come and accepted the fact that they're never going to do anything with what they're doing right now, they are sour. And so I would just get there. I remember one of them. I won't tell their, say their names because maybe they're still alive. Maybe they're visiting church today. So if you're here, I'm so sorry. Or you're watching online. But, you know, I'd walk in and I'd just be like, I'm kind of a cheery. I'd be like, hey, how are y'all doing? And they'd be like, hey. And just three pack-a-day smokers, too. And they'd be like, hey. You know, and then somebody would come and, like, have a job for us. And they would, like, go see the two of them. And they'd be like, can you handle this? Just because I would smile at them and be like, sure, I can. But I had nothing in personality compared to the dude named Howie that worked there. If your name's Howie, come on. I mean, like, you're going to be the life of a party. Howie was just like, well, he's, hey, guys. And he's about this tall. These stout guys, muscular kind of guy. And he was the kind of guy you'd be walking down Fable Street Mall in downtown Raleigh, and he'd just see a beautiful woman and walk up to her and be like, hey, what's the name of our first child going to be? I mean, like, wow. I was like, dude. You know, I was like, show me your ways. You know, but anyway, he's just just charismatic guy. And so whenever he's in the office, Howie and I would just be like, hey, what's going on? We're too crazy. You know, and we were just like that. And then there's two, like, sourpusses over here, and they're like, yeah, yeah. You know, so Howie then one day decided He'd had enough of that job and, and moved on to another job, as all people do. And I came in one, mo- one Monday, and he was gone. And it was like a dark cloud just descended over the entire office. And I had to bring all the sunshine because of the dark clouds over here. And the glory of Howie left. Howie's glory was gone. And it was a darker, colder, not as fun place. Well, imagine the glory of the Lord leaving the temple. Whew. The idolatry of the Israelites was so egregious, and we're going to read through, we're going to go over chapter 6 through 10, but the idolatry of the Israelites is so egregious, God is so disgusted that his glory leaves. That's not the end of the story, but his glory leaves. And so when we go and look back at chapters 1 through 5, remember, son of man, son of man, and and I'm going to command you, son of man, to do things that demonstrate what is going to happen. And so chapters 1 through 5 are these physical demonstrations of what God's going to do, right? And we had the, the siege and the lion on the side and the prophesying and the poop bread and all that kind of good stuff. By the way, he has a thing with poop, I think, because every time that you see in these texts the, the works of idolatry compared to the glory of God, the word that he uses basically in the Greek comes down to poop pellets in the Septuagint. So he's basically comparing idolatry as dung compared to the glory of God. And so when we get to chapters 6 through 10, what we have now is the prophesying about what the destruction of Israel is going to be like. And then chapters 8 through 10 are one single vision, one single vision showing them what the destruction is going to be like. So what you're going to realize is this is September 17th, 592. And in 586, Everything that he prophesies is going to happen. Six years later, from this date, everything is going to happen. 
And so right now, at this time, what's going on is, if you look, there's some helpful things online where you can see, and it'll give you the timeline of kings of Israel and kings of Judah. The, 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 the kingdom was split at this point. Israel is a kingdom by itself. Judah is a kingdom by itself. But now they're both evil. And the evil king that is over uh, Judah at this time is King Jehoiachin, or King Jehoiakim. Uh, if it's just measured, he's a chin. Because there's Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, but he is an evil guy. And that they're talking about what's getting ready to happen in 586 was the destruction of the temple done by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so chapter 10 is significant. It's significant because, again, this is the reversal of what happens when Solomon dedicated the temple. So we'll start with verse 15 because I'm going to go to 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 just to kind of catch you up because there's so much just kind of descriptive language. Let's just start with 15. And so what he's, all he's trying to tell you is that in verse 15 he's saying, listen, I have continually been in touch with the Lord, but this is 14 months later from the first vision, 14 months later. He's continually been in touch with the Lord, and he says, listen, the vision that I had was continued. Now, there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for that. For the Lord did not give him a new teaching, a new revelation, or a new direction. This, this, is, this is significant, so track with me just for a minute. Sometimes I think Christians, and especially those in ministry or those that are leaders, we think that, God, we need to get some new vision and some new direction and some new way to go. But God, with Ezekiel, says, no, no, no. What you need to do is you need to return back to the first one, which is what? My glory. You don't need something new. You need to be reminded of my glory and let that continue on. And so that's what's going on right here. And so in verse 16, verse 16, again, is these Human terms trying to grasp eternal things. So you've got what's going on. You've got the omnipresence of God. You, you've got the, these wheels that are going, the presence of God that's going on. And, and when he says to you, and I'll refer back to, he says, you know how they were covered with eyes? How would you write that someone was all-seeing and all-knowing? Right? So you get the, there's symbolism, and there's mixed symbols in here as well. So that's what's going on here. And so in, in verse and verse 16 is a response, actually, to what happens in chapter 9, verse 3. And so I'll, I'll remind you, in chapter 9, verse 3, the glory of the Lord of Israel rose up from between the cherubim. So it's already been there. He's already come up from the temple, and he's moved to the entrance of the temple. I don't know about y'all, but southern goodbyes are like this, right? You want to go say goodbye, but it takes 25 minutes. So what do you do? You say goodbye while you're sitting at the table, and then you stand up. And then you go to the door and you say goodbye again, but you're there for another half an hour. It's kind of like that. So God has already, and he's getting up, and now he moves and he goes to the door. So the God of glory here in verse 16 has moved to the temple and up to the threshold of the temple. So in verse 17, we're going to see that the servants of God, and this is important, the servants of God move exactly and accordingly to wherever the glory of the Lord moves. Now you're kind of like, yeah, duh. I want you to do a juxtaposition. The servants of God move exactly wherever the glory of God moves. The people of God do not. Did you catch that? The servants, they go wherever. God's people are like, later. And, and so there, there is, there is, this is central to what he's trying to describe. This is how things work in heaven. It doesn't work this way with y'all. Y'all are rebellious. You're sinful. And then in verses 18 and 19, you've got to realize that there is this now a sinking feeling with Ezekiel. The sinking feeling in the heart of Ezekiel to watch the presence and the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. But I also want you to see, uh, let's see what, go ahead and, uh, yeah, right here in this verse is great. Notice something about the way that the, the Lord describes himself, though. How does he describe himself? 
The Lord's presence is, the Lord's glory is leaving the temple. But what does the Lord call himself? The God of Israel. His glory may be leaving, but he's not deserting his people. He's not turning his back on them. They have just forsaken the privilege to have his glory dwell in their temple anymore. But he's not deserting them, and he still calls them his chosen people, the God of Israel. His glory departs, and his punishment is coming, but he will not forsake. So take your Bibles and turn back to chapter 6. If you've got chapter 6, look at chapter 6. Uh, you should have chapter 6 in your Bible unless you got frustrated and tore it out. Don't do that. Um, but this is the part I love because, again, I hope this is the part where we are, we are making, this, making this accessible to you. And you're like, oh, okay, you, this is not so crazy. You know, uh, Maybe you read this to your kids before they went to bed this past week. <laughs> if they had girls, they didn't sleep. If they had guys, they were like, this is amazing. I can't wait for tomorrow. But... Chapter 6 is incredible. And so chapter 6 is a continuation of the visual examples that God is giving to Ezekiel to show the people. And so in chapter 6, what he says, he says, hey, listen, Ezekiel, I want you to go out and prophesy against the mountains. Now, just for kicks and giggles, how many of you guys are like this afternoon thinking casually because the Panthers aren't playing about going up to the mountains? Right, right. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know some of you are. Go to the most popular overlook and look out at Grandfather Mountain and be like, I see you, Grandfather Mountain. Yeah. The Lord said, mm. people are going to look at you and be like, but that's what Ezekiel did. Not only that, but God said, go out and prophesy against the mountains and clap your hands and stomp your feet. Now, when I was studying this, all I could think of was like, Hercules, Hercules. That's all I could think of. But he says, go out and clap your hands and stomp your feet at the mountains. Why? The Israelites had defiled the land with idolatry. Now, I want to share something with you about idolatry. Nobody right off the bat goes, I think I'm going to go worship this detestable idol right now in front of everybody. You know, what you do and what they did was they would notice the, the, the religions around them in, the, in their land and the fleshly things about worshiping an idol that appealed to them that had to do with forbidden sexual practice, forbidden, forbidden dietary practice, things like that that would seem hmm to them. They would go up to the secret mountaintops. They would go to the secret groves and they would go to the secret places that were known to be places where people of the occult or people of that cult of that idol would go and worship and they would go there in secret. But God is saying, what you did in secret, I know about, I know. And the clapping of the hands and the stomping of the feet represents the same thing that happens in Ezekiel 21, which is the clash of swords. I have seen it, and I'm not going to deal with you like, uh-uh. I have seen it, and vengeance and punishment and divine judgment is coming. Now, in chapter 7, chapter 7, as we keep rolling along, you turn your Bible, chapter 7, what phrase is going to happen nine times in chapter 7 is, it will pass, or it has come. The reason is because he's saying to Ezekiel, listen, Remember what I said to you in chapters one through five. The message is on you. You, got, you must faithfully share this message. Whether people hear it or not and, and, and take the message and change, that's on them. But the sharing it is on you. So this is going to happen, Ezekiel. It's on your shoulders to share it. And so what we've got to remember here in chapter seven is within six years of this prophecy, what he has prophesied is actually going to happen. 592, 586, six years later, it's going to happen. And so one of the things they concentrate on in chapter 7 is he says, listen, now 
your idolatry is not just the thing that you've done in secret, but now I'm going to show you that I know that you have used your money to prop up your idolatrous habit and your idolatrous bent. And you have now invested. So first you investigated, and now you have invested your money. And the thing that is going to be so dismaying to you is that which you gave to defile my relationship with you, I am now going to give to your enemies to be part of the war machine, to fund the war machine that will come and crush you. And you, with guilt in your heart, will realize you have funded the same army that is now coming to crush you. And I want you to think about that, how dis but he says, listen, I want you to grasp what you're doing. It's not happening in a vacuum. What you put out is going to come back to you to haunt you. Now, the part of this is the last part is that we even get this in verse 27. Just there's, there's meant to be in verse 27 this just kind of idea of complete despair. Because so often, you know, if we think about the movie Titanic, you know, the movie Titanic, there's the, the, the captain of the ship is kind of at the very end, and he's like, I'm going to go down with the ship and whatever, and like that door is way big enough for two of y'all. Y'all didn't catch that, did you? Okay. What I'm saying is Leonardo DiCaprio could have gotten up on that door with her and not died. She's a selfish lady. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> drop that necklace down into the thing. I hope Leonardo's body got it on the way down. But anyway, you know, he, he stoically is kind of like, you know, he still feels like he has an answer. He's someone in control even though he's going down with the ship. But now here in verse 27, he says, even your kings and leaders, your princes and your people in power, they will be answerless. They will shake. They will tremble. They will not know what to do. They are going to be no use to giving you any direction. And then we get to chapters 8, 9, and 10, and this is where the real fireworks happen again. 8, 9, and 10, and so what you've got to realize is this is a complete vision. And it really goes through chapter 11, but we're stopping at 10 this week. But 8 through 11, and for our sake, 8 through 10 is one complete vision. And so you've got to remember that where is Ezekiel? Is he in Jerusalem? He's in Babylon with the exiles. Remember what we said last week that he and Daniel would have been contemporaries in the exile. Jeremiah operating at the same time as prophesying back in Jerusalem. But Ezekiel is with the, the Babylonian exiles there in Babylon. And so it says what happens is whenever you see this, the servant of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord, that is a precursor to Christ incarnate. So it helps if you read the Old Testament. Whenever you see the servant of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, that's Christ incarnate, the third person of the Trinity, prior to the incarnation there that we know of in the New Testament. So it describes this man. It's this man dressed in linen, but with a body like burnished bronze, flaming, coming out of the smelter you know, from the blacksmith shop, just this... And then it says, and, it says, and he reached out to me something that looked like a hand. Do you know why it looks like a hand? Have you ever looked at something super bright? It's just a blur. You know, we can't even take it all in. But it says this, it says, he reached out and grabbed me by the hair. And Ezekiel's like, this seems about right. Lying on my side for this time, eating poop bread, grab me by the hair. Okay, whatever, it's all good now. I'm going to clap my hands, Hercules at the mountains, you know. All right, so he grabs him by the hair, but that's also something that's trying to tell you something. When he grabs him by the hair and takes him to Jerusalem, what that means is it's symbolizing, again, his body stayed in Babylon. He is with his vision, with his mind being taken and is getting ready to be shown. So again, uh, you know, it doesn't help me. I just kind of thought about like Ichabod Crane or whatever, you know, with the head, the headless horseman, you know, the, the head, the son of man's got the head of Ezekiel around and just kind of showing him. That's not what happened. It just helped me see it. So... But he takes him in spirit to Jerusalem. Remember, he's in Babylon. He takes him to Jerusalem. 
And Ezekiel is then, in chapter 8, exposed now to the depths of outright open idolatry. Remember? Idolatry started in the secret places in the woods, in the mountains, in the groves. Then it worked its way into where it was being funded by people, and they gave their money to it, and they incorporated it in their life. And now they are doing it in public. And so he takes them in a vision, and Ezekiel chapter 8 is crazy, takes them in a vision and he shows them what's going on in the temple. And in the temple he sees that there is an absolute idol that causes temptation or an idol that causes destruction right there in the entrance of the gate of the temple. And then as if that's not enough, he says, you know, we've brought these idols into the temple. He says, take me even further. And so the son of man, or the messenger of the Lord says, son of man, dig through this wall. And so they go to a wall of the temple, and in his dream, in his vision, he digs through the wall of the temple to see what's going on in the secret inner place in the temple. In the secret inner place in the temple in chapter 8, the priests are worshiping these carvings on the wall of lizards and snakes, and the Bible says all kinds of detestable things. So it's not just the people. The leaders are encouraging it, and they're going even deeper in private. And then the messenger of the Lord says, Son of man, I will take you and show you something even worse. And so he's seeing what's going on in Jerusalem at that time, even though he is hundreds of miles away. And they take him to the inner court of the temple. The inner court of the temple is where the most reverent worship happens. It's where only the people who were leaders can go, and no Gentile can go in there. No woman could go in there. That was how, how strict they were. And in that part, the elders of the church are bowing down and worshiping the sun. And he says, have you ever seen anything as awful as this? Have you ever seen how terrible this is? And so in verses 17 and 18 in this text, that in, eight, in chapter 8, 17 and 18 is where God says, and listen, my mind is set. I decree punishment and vengeance upon the people of Israel for their idolatry. Well, in chapter 9, oh my goodness. Chapter 9 is the bloodiest one of all of them. Because chapter 9 is now the vision of what will happen when the Babylonians do in completely destroy Jerusalem. So it's the vision of what happens in the year 586. And the distressing part about this is that he's watching pagan, idol-worshiping, detestable people carry out vengeance on his people. And how, how disgusting that would be to someone. God, you're taking your chosen people and you're wrecking them with this pagan nation. But you have to realize that God is just coming through on what he has promised. Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29, Moses' final, final sermon to the people, that's what Deuteronomy is. He says, listen, there may be times when you disobey God and he will shut up the heavens and cause it to keep from raining. He will cause there to be pestilence. He will cause them to be plagues on your land. He may also raise up other nations to come in and invade you to punish you for disobeying him. Same thing happens in 2 Chronicles 7, 17 through 22. 2 Chronicles 7, 7 17 through 22. That is called the blessings and the curses passage. And so the blessings and the curses passage, they have just dedicated the temple. They've dedicated the temple, and as they're dedicating, he says, Jim, before you, people of Israel, those blessings and curses. Blessings and cursings. You can pick which one. Obey the Lord and there'll be blessings. But if you disobey the Lord, there'll be cursings. And he says, there'll be times that I will shut up the heavens, that I will cause there to be blight and famine, that I'll cause them to be pestilence. And if you disobey me, I will raise up foreign nations to come and invade you, and they will carry you off to their lands. Parents, you know about this. Do that one more time. They do it one more time. I told you. And then all you know what breaks loose? Mom! I just think about that, you know, the Christmas story. Mom, Ralphie! 
But the beautiful part then that also happens in chapter nine, right in the middle of this, and so this is sandwiched between two parts, the beautiful part happens in chapter nine, where there is promised salvation for those that remain faithful to the Lord. So in chapter nine is the first time we begin to hear about this thing called the remnant, the righteous remnant. And so he says, son of man, watch, I will send my messenger out throughout the city. And any of those who mourn and weep over the idolatry and the open now idolatry that they see, I will place upon their heads the mark, and when the destruction comes, they will be saved. Now, I don't want to make a ton about this, but this blew me away. The mark that it says in Hebrew that they will have is the Hebrew letter tau, T-A-O. And you know what the letter tau looks like? It looks like a cross. It says, mark with a cross on the forehead, all of those who remain righteous and mourn over the idolatry going on in the nation, and they will be saved. But then the righteous anger of God comes, and he says, but then slaughter the rest. Slaughter the rest. No matter the age, no matter the, the, the gender, whatever, slaughter the rest, and completely defile the temple. Now, the temple is already defiled, right? But God's saying, you know what? Now on my dollar, it's gonna be defiled. Now I'm gonna stack up the bodies there. And if you take what's going on in chapter nine and you take what's going on in chapter seven and you kind of juxtapose them together, God is so being so vengeful. He says, you know how you've stacked up wood? Because that what, back up with me. They would, they would offer their children as sacrifices to some of these idols. So can you imagine they would pay to stack up wood at the base of the altar of worshiping this idol, and then they would sacrifice their children to these gods like Molech. And so God now says in these two chapters, he says, you know how you stacked up wood? I'm gonna stack up your bodies at these altars. Is God okay with idolatry? You gotta come to the heck no, he's not. In verse eight of chapter nine, the distress of Ezekiel comes forefront. In verse eight, he simply says, he says, while we were carrying out their order, while they were carrying out their orders, he's watching this vision, he cried out and fell down on the dust and said, oh, sovereign Lord, will your fury against Jerusalem wipe out everyone left there? And chapter 10 is God's response to that. And so what we read from chapter 10. Chapter 10 now happens, and Ezekiel, we're seeing the reversal of the filling of the, God's temple with his glory, now the leaving of God's glory from the temple. And the Lord's messenger then comes and he says, take from the fire, the Lord's messenger is, this, is the pre-incarnate Christ, takes coals, scatters them over the city to represent the fact that the city is gonna be burned. It's gonna be complete desolation. In the response of Ezekiel's plea of, are you gonna completely wipe them out? Is the entirety of chapter 10, which is, Ezekiel, remember my glory. Remember my glory. And remember that I continue to identify myself as the God of Israel. And part of this, the, the, when we go to the last part about chapter 10 is this. That having the Israelites having the glory of God there in their temple was a privilege. It was a privilege. And they exchanged the privilege of the glory of God for the privilege to worship an idol and destroy their relationship with God. So the first thing, just you're kind of like, well, what's the application of that? Are we supposed to go out and kill idol worshipers? No. Easy now. Some middle school kids are like, darn it. But the first thing is this, is that Ezekiel, Ezekiel 6 through 8, Ezekiel 6 through 8 shows us exactly how idolatry works and how it ends up. 
Ezekiel 6 through 8 shows us exactly how idolatry works and then where you end up at the end of it. Now, idolatry is this thing that is just kind of like, we, we think of it, we think of it we're like, eh, idolatry, that is silly. Idolatry is silly. Well, we've advanced a little bit, right? You know, we're advanced a little bit. You know, we, we've advanced a little bit. And so guess who else has advanced a little bit in pursuing us and trying to trick us up? Satan. And so the idols that we have typically are good things that God has given us. Money. Nowhere in the Bible does it say money is a bad thing. Timothy would say the love of money is the root of all evil. Maybe it's our career. It's not a bad thing. Maybe it's sex. Sex is a good thing within the confines of marriage. Whatever it is. But anything that takes the place of the Lord, we will, the word is proscunine. Proscunine. What, what, what other English word does that sound like? Prostrate. And so he says, you shall not, when he says you shall worship the Lord your God, he says you shall proscunine only to God Almighty. But what was going on in Israel is they were proscunine and they were prostrating themselves to anything and everything that made them feel good or that filled their fleshly palate. So how does idolatry work? If you're paying attention, you've got to realize this. The first thing that happens to the Israelites is the people are enamored and they are made curious by the religions that surround them. Nothing's different now. There are all kinds of people practicing all kinds of secular, sinful lifestyles all around us. And we're called to be in the world but not of the world. Same thing for the Israelites. They, he didn't say, hey, listen, I'm going to take you and put you in this country, and you're going to be thousands of miles away from anyone else. He did call them to go and drive out everyone else in their country, which they didn't do. But they're never not going to be surrounded by other people. So what happens is they begin to be enamored with what they see in the culture around them. The same is what happens in the church today. And so the idol then, it's not necessarily the, the idol, but the worship of the idol would appeal to their flesh. Let me say something, something about the flesh. The flesh is the part of us that always wants to betray us. I'm not literally talking about your flesh. It's, it's a spiritual term for the part of you that is tied to this world that will be done away with when we are with the Lord and resurrected in our new bodies. But idolatry first appeals to our flesh. And there's a curiosity that we have. The second thing then in chapter 6 is that in chapter 6, then we see that the people, that the thing had appealed, the, the idolatry had appealed to them in, in, in their flesh. Now they secretly go. And you can just imagine, you know, secretly, you know, when, when all the lights are out and there's no street lights and I'm going to kind of steal out and I'm going to go to the sacred grove on the hilltop or I'm going to go to the secret place over here in the valley or I'm going to go to this place over here where I know people by the light of a campfire are worshiping this idol and they're detestable things going on, but in secret, I'm going to go, and I will now go partake in idolatry. Third, in chapter eight, then as we see if it moves along, now in chapter eight, people begin to openly worship idols. <laughs> There's an idol there, an idol right out, the idols are right out there, and then in chapter eight, as it follows along, people seek now, in chapter eight, to have a co-loyal act of worship. So they still come and they worship God, he is one of who they worship. Because why? They don't build a new temple. They bring idols into the temple. Listen, we're going to just, we're going to hedge all our bets. We're going to worship God, but we're going to worship all these other ones, and we're going to do what feels good. And he is part of who we worship, but he is not who we worship. And they have idols in the same place that they are there to worship the Lord. And I'll share with you, nothing's changed. This is how idolatry works. Idolatry begins with curiosity. Curiosity leads then to contemplation. Contemplation leads then to completion. 
Completion then leads to co-opting into our life, and co-opting leads to then conforming to a different thing. Those are all my C's. Curiosity, contemplation, completion, co-opting, and conformity. This is how it works. You're curious about something? And our world will say, if you're curious about it, act on it. And then when you begin to act on it, as you act on it, it becomes the thing you're oriented to. And then the thing that you're oriented to then becomes your identity, right? And this is how we seek, this is how people say this. You know, like, this is where, where someone would say, well, what kind of guy is that? And someone would say, oh, he's a player. You know what that means. His identity is now found in the sin that he has oriented himself to, bought into, and is now that's who he is. Now, I don't know many seventh grade guys that are like, I'm a player. Walk right out of middle school and they're like, you know, just in the Cadillac with 18 women, right? It begins with what? Curiosity. And a curiosity then leads you to go and act on that curiosity to complete the curiosity. Then you're going to try and co-opt it. Well, how, how can I bring this more into my life? I love it. I will, the Israelites propped it up with their finances. And the last part, again, of course, too, is, is they conform to it. So this goes exactly opposite to what has happened in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Because Romans chapter 12 and 1 and 2 are what Paul would have said if he was Ezekiel. As if he said, listen, therefore, my brothers and sisters, offer your bodies. What are we talking about? Offering? He's speaking worship language, right? This is the same language that the priests that were talking about idolatry would have talked about. But he says, listen, offer your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord, holy, pleasing, and pure. You know what that means? Obey while you're offering, Right? Holy, pleasing, and pure is incredibly important because I think we think we can go be nasty, awful, and terrible and come and bring the Lord an offering. And he's like, no, quit doing that, then you can come bring an offering. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and pure. And then he gives you context. When you think about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, is it too much to ask? And then the reversal of idolatry is spoken. Do not conform to the patterns and customs of this world but instead, let God change who you are by transforming your mind. The reason why this is so important is because what Israel did is easy for us to see, but not easy for ourselves to see when we do it. Because what they had done was they had brought an idol into the temple. Guess where the temple of God is now that you're a born-again believer? Do you realize that when you're bringing an idol into the temple what is the church called time and time again in the Old Testament, the, or New Testament, the what of Christ? Bride of Christ. It's meant to show you how intimate our relationship with the Lord is, so it's akin to bringing someone else into the bed with you and your spouse. Tell me how that would go, people. Exactly. And the Lord is saying, do you want to know why I'm so angry? You have brought an idol into my temple. You have brought another lover into our bed. And you want to know why I'm so angry? You know I'm talking about death and all this kind of stuff? That's what you did. But maybe the more spiritual, this may be more practical, this is more spiritual application is this. Like Israel, we cannot forget that the presence of the glory of God is a privilege. And we exist to magnify the glory of God. That's why the church exists. The church exists to magnify the glory of God to the world. That's why the church exists. We exist just like Israel to magnify the glory of God. 
And so God's glory is transformative. God's glory is transformative. Even when Ezekiel is down, God says, you know what, come see my glory again. Come see my glory again. When we think about what happened when God's glory filled the temple, the priest couldn't, he said, hey priest, you're gonna do all these kind of things. God's glory fills the temple and the priests are like, we can't even get in there. It's just transformative. We can't even do our works because your glory is so great. Israel's only job was to magnify the glory of God. Now, how are they supposed to magnify the glory of God? By obeying his laws. By obeying his laws. They had three types of laws. Three types of laws. They had laws of civility and separation. The Israelites had laws of civility and separation, which were what? Don't eat shellfish, right? Don't eat pork. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. Be different. You know how different you're going to be? You're going to be so different that nobody is going to look like you. You're going to be circumcised. You're not going to wear the same types of fabric. You're not going to look the same. You're not going to go this place. You're not going to go that place. Your language is going to be different. You are going to be different. Why? Because people will see your difference and it will magnify the glory of God. God is holy. I want people that are separated from the world to have fellowship with me. And they obey that law and it glorifies God. What's the other one? They had laws of ceremony. You, know, you can't just go into the temple just willy-nilly. You can't go in the temple without being clean. You can't go into the temple without this. You can't bring just this kind of sacrifice. You can't do just this kind of worship. You can't have these kind of things in worshiping the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is holy. The Lord is glorious. And when we worship him, we must be separate. We must be holy. And we must magnify the Lord's holiness in our laws of ceremony. And finally, they gave them laws of morality. We have the same ones. Don't steal from your neighbor. Don't lie to your neighbor. Don't cover what your neighbor has. Don't murder. All those things. Those are laws of morality to separate God's people so that when they worship the Lord and follow him, it what? Glorifies God. But how did they look at those laws? As burdens. They looked at those laws as burdens. They looked at those laws as burdens. And so instead of going, I'm obeying these because by obeying them, it magnifies the glory of God. By the way, that's the only reason why I'm here. Parents, you know how this is. Your kid is like, why are you taking this away from me? And why are you punishing me? And why is this and why is that? And you go, this is the only reason why I'm here so you don't die or end up in jail. This is why I'm here. You know what? You'd be in jail without me. I wish you wouldn't. This is the only reason why I'm here, to parent you. If I don't do this, you'll die. The Israelites didn't get the only reason they're there is to glorify or magnify the glory of God. But they looked at the laws that he gave them to separate them, to be a people unto his own. The privilege to be God's people unto their own, to belong to him and have his glory. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Nothing has changed. All the ways that the Lord says, you're in this world, Christian, come out from this world. Deny yourself, carry your cross. When you worship God, you are magnifying the Lord. When you obey God, you're magnifying the Lord. When you pray, you're magnifying the Lord. When you share your testimony, you're magnifying the glory of the Lord. When you serve out in the community, when you feed the poor, when you build the house for the habitat, when you go and share it with those who are sick or in prison, you are magnifying the glory of God. And what is that doing? It's taking the God that we know who is so glorious, and we know it, but the world does not know it, and the world doesn't care, and we're saying, look, Not at me. Look at the glory of God. He can change you because the glory of God is transformative. But when we think that we're here for any other reason than that, 
we begin to see all of those laws as burdens and not as ways to glorify the Lord. Jesus, I love in John chapter 12, verse 28, as he's wrestling what's getting ready to happen, as he's wrestling with what's going on, even as he talks about the task before him, and he talks about what he's going to have to go through, he says, I'm going to have to go through this, and the Son of Man will suffer, and the Son of Man will be handed over to his enemies, and the Son of Man will be tortured. And he says, but it is for this reason that I came in John 12, 28. Father, bring glory to your name. And that was Jesus' prayer. Father, bring glory to your name. And so the battle that's going on for our hearts is the battle of idolatry and it's the battle to lay aside those things that would magnify the glory of God in exchange for things that are temporal and do not bring life. So today, church, we sit just right alongside Israel. God's not cool with idolatry. If you don't believe me, go back and read 6 through 10 again. That's how God feels about idolatry. He's not like, uh, they're pretty cute. They're idol worshipers, but he's irate about it. We've invited someone not in our relationship into the bed with us and the Lord. We are on earth to magnify the glory of God. Well, let's pray to the Holy Spirit to give us strength to do the task and complete the task which we've been called to do. Let's pray.